squirrel was magic. This is a Diabolical Index for Monday, April 23rd, 2018, where the pages of the uncanny reside. I'm Corey Dawson, as always, from Paradox City Books and Games in Rising Sun, Indiana. And it's just one of those things, my perfect record has been tarnished. Uh, this is my, my first episode back from, uh, from my little hiatus. Uh, it's been a busy little time, my... Uh, my real job, I guess you could say, has been going through a little bit of a shift. Uh, we moved uh, out of this state into another state. So I've been really busy with that um, and had to take off last time. And uh, this last weekend, I'm just in, actually. It was just last night I got in from the Midwest Action Fest, Logansport, Indiana. And I totally uh, recommend checking out some of the stuff that was there. I recommend um, The Summoner. It was an awesome uh, I guess you could say it was like a supernatural action film uh, about a, a company. I think it's Odin, Odin Spectral Solutions or something like that, where there's a guy who gets the call. And I guess, you know, some people might make a lot of Ghostbusters references, but it's so physical that it definitely goes over into the Evil Dead 2 realm. But there was no, uh, there were no laughs to be had. It was definitely serious and... There were some feels there. I definitely recommend the summoner. I hope that uh, I hope that he. I think his, his name is James, the director. I, I hope that he uh, gets the funding to make it into a, a full feature. It was a uh, it was a longer short, but uh, check it out. The summoner. It was it was wonderful, and also uh, the Theta Girl. Uh, definitely check that out. It's kind of a uh, they exist. Oh, what did they uh, exploit? Existentialization, whatever existentialism and exploitation. If you put those two together, that's what they called it, uh, and it's it's beyond description. So just look up the Theta Girl, T H E T A. It's you won't regret it. it, it it's unlike anything you've seen before. But uh, also, oh, I almost forgot. C Detectives, fantastic animated uh, short that was there about. Uh, a lobster detective and his clam uh, partner. It was it was a kind of a takeoff of the Sherlock Holmesian type detective stories, and but it takes place under the sea, and it was totally it was a lot of fun, and there were a lot of jabs at uh, detective fiction, and just I guess kind of like the the rabid fanboy fan base of different things uh, along the lines of pop culture. So I definitely uh, I recommend checking that out. There were so many that I uh, that I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting, but uh, Midwest Action Fest uh, inaugural first annual uh, this year, and uh, just coming off the 
Midwest Horror Fest, the first annual from last year, uh, they got their work cut out for them. I think they said they had over, uh, I think it was something like over 100 or 190. I can't remember. I think it was closer to 200 uh, submissions for the uh, Midwest Horror Fest this year. So it's going to be something else. It's going to take place over uh, three days in October. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. And also, you know, I got uh, I got Andrew and TJ as Andrew as always, and TJ is stepping in to help out if the if the lights on my somewhat craggy face somewhat craggy. I'm, I'm letting I don't know. It's it's been coming through. I had to shave it uh, shave it all the way down so I could have my mashup costume for the costume contest, the Action Fest. I was. Uh, a mashup of Harvey Keitel and Quato from Total Recall, so I was Harvey Quattel. But uh, I had to shave down a little bit, but it's already growing back. I usually have a 5 o'clock shadow at noon, but uh, that, that's normal. But if the lighting looks good, it's all TJ. But they're in from the uh, the cinematic reality. Uh, they're filming that about 20 minutes away from here. So they, bra- they broke off from that and stole some equipment to, uh, <clears throat> well... You know, to bring down to uh, Magic Squirrel and, and, and give it a little bit of class. But, uh, yeah, so that's one thing I want to mention. Uh, also, Deranged Minds Entertainment, make sure to go there and, and check out what they've got going for Inverted, their new feature, uh, which, coming off the heels of Red Eye, uh, they're, they're going to have to do a lot to shock people more than they did with Red Eye. But I, I have a feeling they they might know a thing or two about how to do that. But... Definitely go to Deranged Minds Entertainment and check out their Indiegogo for their future. And so tonight, I uh, have some births and deaths in literary history. And probably one of the most famous births in April would have to be the Bard himself, the Bard of Avon, William Shakespeare. And uh, I, when I was looking up the, uh, just kind of the researching the births and deaths, I realized that uh, William Shakespeare uh, was born and died in the same month, which, I don't know, it doesn't give a whole lot of credence uh, to him actually having existed. There's a lot of rumors about whether or not William Shakespeare was actually a collection of writers and playwrights and, and philosophers of the time. Uh, Christopher, um, Christopher, I can't remember his last name right now, but he wrote um, Dr. Faustus. And uh, his friend, uh, Ben Johnson, kind of a playwright, who uh, they kind of, they always describe Ben Johnson versus William Shakespeare like you kind of have the mad genius who can do everything in just a flash with no, with no sleep, with you know, boundless energy. And then you have the other more studious scholarly one who is a little bit slower off the draw and gets forgotten by time and lasts longer than, uh, than his predecessor. So... Um, that's going to bug me. I can't remember his name now. Hmm. Anyway, but the, it, it kind of, I don't know. It, it kind of lends a, a little bit of mystery to the whole, the whole story of William Shakespeare's, whether or not he existed. It just seems kind of convenient that it was in the same month on both ends. So that's why I didn't mention the death category because I, I thought it was a little bit more important to, to mention that he had been born. Another one uh, on that list who is almost as famous, I'd say, for 
it's one of those uh, those rare occasions where someone is so famous for one work that they their name never really goes away, and uh, their other works are are kind of lost to time. And that's Robert Block, uh, creator of Psycho, and many other fantastic things. He wrote some books on uh, Jack the Ripper and uh, a lot of short stories. He was involved with Alfred Hitchcock uh, Mystery Magazine in a lot of ways. Uh, after the the success of Psycho, he had actually written two more Psycho books, and I'm looking forward to them making a legitimate Psycho movie the way it uh, came out in the book, because believe it or not, the book is more gory than the movie was, and uh, I'd say that Norman Bates looked a lot more like Toby Jones from The Mist, the uh, the little cashier guy. I think he was in one of the Captain America. He was in Captain America, the first Captain America, as the little henchman, or not henchman, but the, the fellow scientist of the Red Skull. But uh, Norman Bates in the book was actually a small, balding, uh, middle-aged man. So when you think of the the change, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Anthony Perkins made that that role his own, and he was actually almost unable to escape it uh, after he it ruined his career as an actor. He had actually been groomed to be a leading man. Uh, he had been in some romantic uh, movies and dramas and things like that. And then he picked Psycho and uh, became immortal and basically screwed his career up. He was in uh, Murder in the Orient Express and he was in Catch-22, but I don't think anyone paid as much attention as uh, in Psycho. But Robert Block was also a member of the infamous Lovecraft Circle, uh, where, you know, Lovecraft was incredibly prolific with his correspondence with a group of writers uh, that kind of hung on his every word, and he would write just voluminous piles of mail to, to them answering questions and just kind of flushing out ideas and all those types of things. And Robert Block was one of his, uh, one of the people he corresponded with. And I think he actually did the forward to my first copy of Blood-Curling Tales of Horror and the Macabre, the Lovecraft, in my opinion, the finest Lovecraft collection of all. I think I got it when I was like 10 years old, something crazy like that. So I've been on the bandwagon longer than anybody. But uh, the third one that I was going to mention is the infamous uh, Vladimir Nabokov, uh, the writer of Lolita, uh, the shocker of the uh, the 50s um, with hum Humbert Humbert, the older man who uh, who searches in vain for some sort of way into uh, his young neighbor's life and the obsession ends up destroying his life and, and many other lives in that story. And Nabokov did other things, many other things, Pale Fire. Uh, it, but again, just like Robert Block, uh, his his initial success overshadowed everything that he was going to do after that. I'm sure he was considered a man of letters and uh, had a lot of critical acclaim, but it never quite captured the imagination of the populace like uh, Lolita did, which is a danger. Uh, when you get too, uh, when you get too familiar, then sometimes uh, it becomes safe uh, and you, and you lose your bite. But those are the births in literary history that I collected for today. There are many more uh, Anne McCaffrey's in there, but to be honest, I'm not really, I'm not too familiar with Anne McCaffrey past the fact that I know that not everything she did, but a lot of what she did had to do with uh, the writing of dragons. 
I just don't know enough about it. But um, the deaths are just as compelling. Um, William Hope Hodgson, uh, which isn't a name that's huge outside of uh, really classic horror fans. Uh, William Hope Hodgson was the creator of Karnacki the Ghost Finder, which was one of the most popular, uh, well-known of its time, uh, kind of supernatural detective, kind of a ghost hunter and uh, mysteries that would surround different supernatural happenings and monsters. He would go after it and, and solve it in a, in a really laconic way. Uh, he wasn't... <laughs> This finder adventure, a lot of times he would go in and kind of look things over and almost in a Holmesian way, uh, just analyze it, take it apart bit by bit and, and make everyone realize that it was the, the safest thing in the world uh, that had happened. But that's definitely one of my favorites, Karnacki. Um, kind of writes up there with uh, some of the... Uh, Dr. Nicola is another one that kind of falls into that same realm. Although Nicola, that was one of the the few books of that time where the villain was actually the, the main piece of the book, much like uh, Dr. Fu Manchu and the yellow peril that it was big at the time. I'm also sure they could get away with it today because there are a lot of uh, horrific Asian stereotypes in those books. But, um, but I was a big fan of them when I was a kid there. I remember one. Um, so, so many death traps. I mean, uh, jigsaw would, would get a migraine headache just trying to think of all the stuff that Fu Manchu came up with. There was one where a police officer just like walks through a room and he brushes past this gigantic uh, pod sack of some plant and the spores that come off of it and just like cloud his body, just like eats him to the bone is like a couple of seconds. And this was written in the tens. I mean, this was before prohibition that this stuff came out. So uh, I I totally recommend checking it out. Sometimes it's difficult to find, but um, uh, yeah, I'm getting off track. So I was talking about William Hope Hodgson. Uh, he died in April, um, and uh, someone else you may have re uh, recognized the name Bram Stoker died in April. Uh, the creator of uh, much to Andrew Moore's dismay, Dracula among other things. Um, Guy's in the midst of all these horror films, and he just, I don't know what to say about it, man. I just, I don't know what to do with you. But, yeah, so Bram Stoker um, famously uh, was was kind of heckled, and a lot of people um, in the know of, of vampire lore kind of uh, gave him a little bit of flack for picking and choosing things. Uh, but, I mean, there were th some things that had never come to light in literature before he made Dracula, and a lot of people... Uh, took his um, his kind of letter form where things would be, the story would go along as part of a journal entry or uh, a letter from one person to another or a newspaper clipping or the report of uh, the Demeter crashing up onto the, the shore and the, the wolf jumping off, that type of thing. Uh, it was borrowed by many people. In fact, uh, part of it was borrowed by uh, the book that I did a few weeks ago, uh, the troop they did a lot of stuff in that where it was news reports and and newspaper clippings and internet uh, chat rooms and things and uh, Stephen King has borrowed it many many times especially most famously for Carrie uh, Carrie was composed of a lot of that type of thing and uh, he said before that you know Dracula Abram Stoker was a big influence of his and 
But to say that Stephen King hasn't been influenced by someone, I mean, it's just it's kind of par for the course now. Uh, I'll have more to say about Stephen King a little a little later when I talk about uh, one of the authors I'm going through tonight. You just can't you can't not talk about him. But uh, Bram Stoker wrote all kinds of things. Actually, uh, he wrote The Lair of the White Worm and um, and the House or the The Jewel of the Seven Stars. That was a really great Egyptian uh, horror story. And uh, there's also kind of a postscript uh, called Dracula's Guest that uh, somewhere right here, actually, right here. Bookham. I do have something to show on Bookham. Let's see if I can get it on target. There we go. Uh, Dracula's Guest. It's actually kind of a, a postscript. I guess you could say it was a sequel or it might even be a prequel uh, to the Dracula story. And... A lot of publishers uh, kind of took off on the idea once Dracula was such a hit. Uh, and, you know, I think in some part it had to do with uh, they made many plays of it. And actually, Bela Lugosi started uh, his Dracula fame in a play when he was younger and carried on into the film. But uh, Bram Stoker died April. I'm not sure what the year was. I try not to spend too much time on the years, just kind of sum it up through the months. But, uh, the final death for April, uh, you may have heard of, uh, creator of Poor Richard's Almanac, and the the rumored, the fabled, the, you know, the legendary discoverer of electricity. I I don't know. I think that uh, it happened way before then. But Benjamin Franklin. There were so many things to say about uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, true Renaissance man. Uh, total polyglot. Uh, I mean, he. He did it all. He did everything. Uh, he was a, a writer and a philosopher and a scientist and a uh, what they call a deductionist of his time. And apparently a Lothario, too. I don't know. He was a diplomat, international diplomat. Uh, he famously wanted the turkey to be the national bird of America. Uh, I, I think that that's kind of shown up in logic a little more and even in the past few years than ever could have had before. If, uh, if any bird is, uh, is indicative of the, the country we live in right now, it would definitely be something that would look up and drown in a rainstorm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many things to say about Benjamin Franklin, but I think that the, you know, what you could do is read his autobiography. That's a good place to start or just look at the changes and the, and kind of like the, the promise that he brought to the early colonial Americans and their culture. But anyway, there you go. The person deaths for April on the Diabolical Index. As always, I, I think I go on a little long about those, but it's only because of that that uh, I think that I can kind of back off. It, it's happened again. It seems like the last couple of times that I've chosen the books to talk about, they, uh, in this case, I've read both of these books before. Uh, I thought of, of one in particular because uh, I, I never quite got to finish it, but I, I had read about three-fourths of it. And, and the other I read straight through uh, the first time I had picked it up, and that was only last year, I believe, uh, when I picked up the second book I'm going to talk about tonight, and I just read it straight through. And what I'm going to do is something I don't normally do, but they're just they're so good. And uh, I think it'll give you an idea of 
why I may not be saying as much about it as I would, um, because it's just something that you have to read to believe. But uh, the first one I'm going to talk about tonight is uh, Robert R. McCammon's Gone South. Now, Robert R. McCammon, I said I was going to talk more about Stephen King, and I, I will definitely in this. Um, do we, is the is the photo up? Okay. So as you can see by the the cover page or the cover of um, Gone South, even by kind of like the the curving uh, font of the lettering for the title, you can see that there was something that they were trying to uh, instill in his books that would kind of put him next. Like if you look at Stephen King's books and Dean Koontz's books, you can see that they do the same thing there where they, they use their name and the title to frame a, a scene in the center of the cover. And it was big for a long time, uh, especially in the, in the eighties uh, to do that. But in this case, I, I honestly think that Robert R. McCammon was one of the ones that you expected to be kind of remembered in the same breath as Stephen King and Dean Coons. And actually, with Dean Coons, I, I think, in my opinion, I think that Robert R. McCammon should have totally eclipsed Dean Coons. And to be honest, in my humble opinion, I think that he eclipsed uh, Stephen King a long time ago. Uh, it's one of those things where sometimes when when you reach a height, as Stephen King has, where people start looking at you, you know, you you write something as as grisly as Cujo under the influence of multiple drugs and, and al alcohol, you know, drinking out of the the mouthwash bottle and you know taking lines off of a mirror you got at some fair by throwing a ring across a bottle. Uh, he doesn't even remember it. And Robert R. McCammon was writing uh, around the same time and just came out with wonderful stuff. And in the, the, especially the characterizations in some of King's stuff seems so stilted to the point where uh, he wants to make it appear so homey and, and uh, all American, but you don't necessarily recognize the people that you're supposed to be, you know, seeing in your everyday lives. Whereas Robert McCammon, um, I recognize everybody in this book. There's no doubt about it. The, the lead, the lead character, Dan Lambert, uh, the disgruntled Vietnam veteran, and uh, even some of the more <laughs> outlandish figures. I mean, I worked at a casino. I've seen all, all, all types. And, uh, I definitely felt a kinship with a lot of them in the book, um, without so much, fault or all. I just, I just, I don't think that, uh, some of the later thing, I mean, don't get me wrong. King. And it's, it's a shame. It really is a shame because I think that the stuff that he did when he was off his head is a lot better than the stuff that he did when he realized what he was doing. Um, and it, it shows, uh, like for instance, I, I thought that Gerald's game should have been a short story. When you and Melanie would definitely disagree with me about that. I think she's reading that right now. But uh, I think that at certain points, you know, you start tacking things on, and once you have the name, then you can just keep going. I mean, I I saw um, his newest book, The Outsider. I saw that uh, recognized as the king of horror becoming the kid of the dad novel, which is a terrifying, terrifying thing to be called. Uh, because I mean, I I think that I. 
I know what a, a dad novel is. My my dad wrote. Uh, he read a lot of uh, James Michener and and Jennifer's gonna get me for that one. She's been telling me to read James Michener, but like Clive Cussler and things of that ilk, where you see you know pops reading on the on the beachfront. But um, I'm digressing all over the place. But basically, uh, I think that Robert McCammon uh, really got shafted. I, I don't know exactly how it came about, but he never really reached the heights that they had. And, um, this book was one of his later books and it, it didn't, it wasn't as heavy handed as something like Shawshank Redemption where, you know, you, you have, you know, some entity tearing kids live from limb and, and it, and then all of a sudden we feel for a, for a con that wasn't supposed to be where he was or in green mile where, some gentle giant ends up having the touch of God. So in Robert McCammon's work, um, I mean, I, I'm totally blown away that the guy hasn't, that a, a movies haven't been made of multiple books of his. Uh, I, everyone I know that's read Robert McCammon for any length of time has become a writer. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Nate Souther, the, the author of porcelain, the first, one of the first books I did on this podcast or on this, uh, video, whatever you call it. I don't know what to call it, but you know what I mean? Uh, he, he turned me on to McCammon when we were in school, like even before high school, he was reading stinger and, uh, he told me about swan song, which, uh, people who are in the know, they say that it totally smokes the stand. And there's kind of a question as to whether or not Swan Song was McCammon's answer to the stand, uh, with the you know post-apocalyptic type of thing. But he written a couple of things like that, and he he made his vampire novel, and uh, he made his werewolf novel, uh, The Wolf's Hour, which is about a werewolf in World War II. I totally, totally recommend The Wolf's Hour to anyone because when you can read something called The Wolf's Hour and you see a guy in a, a military you know, fatigues on the front of it, uh, changing before your very eyes into a wolf. And yet somehow it manages not to be goofy. It's a wonderful spy story and it's got as much adventure and intrigue as you could ever possibly expect from Bourne. And the guy turns into a freaking wolf for Christ's sake. Read the wolf's hour. I can't, I can't express it enough. It's such a wonderful romp, uh, through Nazi Germany with a guy getting just as many licks in as uh, Aldo the Apache. I mean, Inglorious Bastards wishes it could be the Wolf's Hour. But, anyhow, we're not talking about the Wolf's Hour. I'm just saying that I, I, uh, I really feel in my heart that Robert McCammon had... Uh, I think that he got the short straw somehow. Somehow there wasn't enough room for him, and he ends up being kind of like this third banana somehow uh, behind Coons, which... Uh, it just seemed like at, after a certain period of time, Coons was like a dime a dozen. But um, anyhow, I did want to read the. Uh, uh, I wanted to read the the inner cover of um, Robert McCammon Boys. Uh, I almost said Boys Life. It says Boys Life in the back. Gone South. Boys Life is another one of his. That's uh, it's just a wonderful uh, story of a child and and growing up and. It's just that thing where, you know, Stand By Me, The Body, the original story for The Body in different seasons, I think that was kind of before the time where he was trying to make make everybody like him, which I think kind of happened to him. 
And, you know, I should have mentioned Peter Straub in there, too. But I think that, uh, with that kind of, like, list of people, but I think that people, when they think of Stephen King, or when they think of Peter Straub, they just have to link Stephen King to him. And maybe that's why the talisman happened and Black House happened. But uh, but he's a wonderful writer, too. And I think that sometimes you uh, you get darkened by someone else's shadow and you just can't ever get clear of it. But in this case, I, I almost think that they had just shut the door in McCammon's face and allowed, uh, allowed King and Coons and Straub to walk through. But I don't want to down any of their stuff, really, except for King. He pisses me off sometimes. Lizzie's story, he says that's his favorite book. No. Maybe that's an elitist view. I don't know. But uh, if he tells me that Lizzie's story is better than Thinner, or, I mean, granted, he would say that was Bachman. But Bachman is King. King is Bachman. He released two books with practically the same cover, like corresponding covers as both guys. I'm done with that. So, anyhow, I wanted to read this for uh, Gone South. Flooded by memories, poisoned by the deadly fallout of Ancient Orange, and desperate for work, Dan Lambert kills a man in a moment of blind fear, fear and fury. It is an act he cannot excuse, a mistake that will change his life forever. And now Dan is on the run, heading south toward the Louisiana bayous, and on his trail are police officers and bounty hunters, including the most memorable and bizarre team ever paired in modern fiction. Pelvis Isley an Elvis impersonator of the worst kind, and Flint Murtaugh, a fastidious, ruthless loner and freak show refugee who carries the body of his unformed twin brother on his side. As Dan heads down the swampland in search of his own salvation, he meets a young woman who's on a similar journey. Like Dan, Arden Halliday bears a great burden, a disfiguring purple birthmark that blankets half of her face, wounded by the stares, by the pity and revulsion. She's making her way into the bayous in search of the Bright Girl, a legendary faith healer who rid her of her birthmark and her suffering. Though on separate missions, Arden and Dan come to respect each other's quest for freedom, for the touch of simple kindness in a world grown cruel. Thrown together by circumstance, bound by a loyalty stranger than love. A loyalty stranger than love. I love that. They set off on a journey of relentless suspense and impassioned discovery an odyssey over dark, twisting roads and waterways into the beautiful and mysterious depths of the human heart. Now, that <laughs> that tells you what's going on. And it tells you the heart of the story. And it kind of gives you a glimpse into the darkness of the story. But uh, how it uh, it kind of just kind of landed on the two bounty hunters for a second. Um they really are two of the most memorable characters that I've ever seen in a story. But basically, yeah, Dan Lambert is the is the victim of what he called the Silver Rain in Vietnam, where they they put Agent Orange on the trees as the I think it's called a defoliant, and they said that you know whatever whatever there was a plant that was alive would die under it. And somehow they were supposed to be fine. They said they could take a shower in it and rub it in their armpits and on their face and everything else. They'd be fine. And I've seen some of the victims of Agent Orange, even their wives started to show effects after a little while. And Dan Lambert knows that he's going to die. Uh, he actually thinks that he's only got a, a few months or maybe even a little more than a year to live. So when he, um, he goes to this place where all, 
all of the skilled men with no jobs go to wait for people to uh, kind of take a sort of mercy on them and give them working work, working work, working jobs. Uh, he has to sacrifice his pride to do it, even though he knows that he gave it all for the country that, that won't even give him a second glance. And basically he needs his truck to do any sort of job. If he were to get one, uh, here's a pen if you need one. He's eating a pen over here, and I think that that's actually the one. Uh, there was a pen that the the tip of it came off, but yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I should have warned someone. But uh, but basically, he his truck is about to get repossessed. So this man who's teetering on the brink of leukemia and uh, the ravages of a country that hates him uh, is about to lose his only means of of making money and uh trying to be something for his his son who who's with an estranged wife and uh they go away because he has a, a flashback of killing in a, in a war that he didn't begin and all of a sudden he finds himself with his hands around his uh his son's throat um Josh DeForge and JJ Wolf on Insta Oh okay <laughs> All right, sorry, I I had trouble reading it, but yeah, we got some Instagram followers tonight. But um, um, but anyhow, what? Sorry. Oh, it's okay. I'm not I'm not good at the uh, at the prompts yet, but um, I just I get in my zone. Is 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 difficult to is <laughs> difficult to to get this stuff to break in, but uh, I'm knocking stuff over. But uh, so anyway, he goes into the bank and he basically says, you know, please, sir, if you could if you could help me out. And it turns out that the bank manager has changed in the last time that he's been in there. And uh, a brand new bank manager has come in that, that won't be helping out some poor Vietnam veteran, even though he, he owes him $1,500 or whatever it is. And it comes down to a showdown in the, in the manager's office. And it's, it's, and that's another one of those things where it doesn't have to be fabricated. You can totally imagine this scenario if you've ever had to ask someone for something and swallow your pride and totally step on your beliefs to try to just squeeze out some little bit of human kindness so you can just make it through another week and push comes to shove. He looks around and he sees that the, the bank manager's got all sorts of, um, uh, I support the, the, you know, the armed forces and American flags all over everything. And, he explains to the guy what happened to him and that he's got leukemia from, you know, from different things he was exposed to and the guy won't be having it. And the next thing you know, a man's dead. So, uh, Dan Lambert has to go on the run. But one of the things that, that really, I mean, it, it grabs you by the heart and by the brain and, and just, you know, what's happening. You felt what's happening. Uh, to this to this character, this man, uh, it goes beyond a character. I totally recognize this guy. Uh, everything that happened to him, I, I'd seen before, and and it wasn't um, it wasn't so familiar that I didn't feel a pang of you know of of suspense and and disgust, and you know I felt sick to my stomach when and I had read this before uh, when when it all comes down and he has to. Uh, he has to make a break for it fruitlessly because he's, he really doesn't have anything to lose. 
he ends up uh, in the in the South Country, and he comes across a a church. He ends up having to uh, hide in the church, and he meets the pastor, and the pastor actually brings him home for dinner, fried chicken dinner. So it's there's nothing that that really seems too far fetched, and even when you get to the most like I said, it's, when they said the most memorable characters, I can't think of anything I agree with more because uh, Flint Murtaugh is this uh, gambler and also a bounty hunter, and he, uh, you know, he he's just hard. Like Flint is a perfect name. He's hard enough to strike sparks on steel. You know, um, it's it's just it's such a wonderful character because. He uh, at one point he wins in this game of cards and someone falls him out into the alley to get their money back and he taps his uh, he taps his belt buckle and all of a sudden you see this or in your mind's eye just from reading it you see this scrawny little albino arm with a you know with a hand at the end of it come out from between his the buttons of his shirt and probably his bolo tie and all this stuff with a little two shot derringer. And points it straight at the guy as he's got, you know, Flint Murtaugh's got his both hands up and he's at the mercy of this guy who wants his money back. And all of a sudden this thing from some sort of freak show ends up uh, rearing a Derringer out from his chest and points it at the guy. So you find out that uh, he's got a, a conjoined twin brother named Clint that is kind of uh, kind of half grown into his chest and part of his belly from birth, but... He just kind of feeds him rich crackers, and he uses them as like this uh, blind during uh, during card games. So Clint will like feed him aces and stuff. It's just it's fantastic, especially when you uh, when you see the story of of Dan Lambert. You think that this fantastical, kind of gruesome, but weird and you know kind of on the fringe type of character would take you out of it, but it doesn't. So I think that's just like a testament to the, especially, I mean, that's not even the, the half of it. Then, uh, he meets, then you, then we meet, uh, his boss, which is kind of this like King, this real slimy boss hog, like kingpin type character who says, you know, there's a reward for Dan Lambert. Uh, I think it's like 10 grand or something from the bank. So he ends up sending Flint, but he says that he needs to kind of sharpen up a new guy and it turns out the new guy is this guy named pelvis isley who's a elvis impersonator but somehow he's got this gift of gab where uh where he can talk to someone and then the next thing you know you're like giving away all your secrets to this guy so they're two of the of the strangest bedfellows you could possibly think of and they've been sent to hunt this very very simple wronged man across the bayous of louisiana and um and that's all i'm gonna say about it because it's 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 wonderful it is so much fun and uh but yet at the same time it's got so much heart and so much grit at the same time um there doesn't have to be any fake action there doesn't have to be any uh fake drama or fake horror uh, just even in the something as simple as uh, you meet this uh, little trailer court uh, type of motel uh, proprietor, and it's this little man with a stutter, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's got this hulking wife that just has his uh, has his heart in her hand, 
and it, you you recognize everything. You recognize all of it, even the stuff that that totally uh, gives you fits of revulsion. You get all of it, um, and it doesn't take as much time, and and as much prodding, and as much machination, as much puppet mastering as Stephen King does. So, that's it. That's all I'm going to say about Gone South. Um, find it wherever you can. I was able to find it at the library. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, I get so many things. I mean, look behind me. I just got so many things that sometimes I can't find some of the books I'm looking for. So I end up going to my local library, which you should definitely do. There are more there than computers. Believe me. Yes, that's right, punk. There are things called books there. Libros. But, uh, yeah, check it out. Definitely, definitely read anything by Robert R. McCammon you can get a hold of. Uh, mine, uh, which I've never read, but it looks totally terrifying. Uh, Mystery Walk. Usher's, I think it's Usher's Passing, uh, which is kind of a, a sequel to The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. It's a, but it's a novel form. Um, they Thirst, which is... They Thirst is kind of a, a look into the 90s. Uh, it's a vampire novel, and it kind of uh, it takes place directly after The Lost Boys would. Uh, so you get a definite taste of the 90s, and maybe Poppy Z. Bright was taking a look at that when she wrote her stuff. But um, anything by him. I think he had a, uh, a two-part book called Speaks to Nightbird that came out not too long ago. I haven't read that one yet, but definitely check out anything by him. He's got some short, uh, short, short stories as well. And there's one called uh, Night Crawlers uh, about a, another another Vietnam vet that goes into a diner, and it turns out that he he's got a little bit to say about the fabric of reality. So definitely Robert Armour Cameron, Gone South, anything by him, totally read it. I recommend it wholeheartedly. If you don't like it, I'll pay for it. So there you go. That's all I can say about that. Uh, the second one for tonight uh, is even more colorful than the first. It's uh, Donnie Brook by Frank Bill, who actually, uh, as far as I know, he's probably not there now just due to his uh, his recent, I don't know if I want to say stardom, but he's definitely gotten popular. He he ended up writing a, uh, a Crow series, um, and he wrote, uh, I don't know if it's considered a sequel to Donnie Brook or if it's kind of in the same world called the savage and that it's been difficult to find. I've been really wanting to read it. And he actually wrote one called crimes in Southeastern Indiana. Um, everything you see, like we're, we're in the place for this. Every, everything, every location that he's gotten his books, uh, I've seen or driven through at some point, he talks about the Ohio river and the bends in the river and, uh, uh, parts of Kentucky and Southeastern Indiana. And I recognize all of it. Uh, and there's, there's nothing that seems, um, fantastical by any of it, especially since, uh, considering what goes on in these books. Um, some people will kind of liken them to Chuck Palahniuk, but, uh, I guess that the, the part with Chuck Palahniuk, I think they might be tacking that on there just because this book, uh, has a fight club element to it. And I, I'm not so sure that I agree, except maybe in the, uh, the placement of names, the place, the kind of like the, the weaving of, uh, the cutting of, these intertextual stories and things, because, uh, I'm going to read the, the, the cover description and summary of this. I think I'm gonna do that first, actually, because, um, 
it's really it's really something else. I told these guys that uh, if they didn't want to read either of these books, I I would really be surprised because uh, they're. It, <laughs> It's, it's really something. I actually I had to buy a second copy because the first copy that I had had been so beaten up from me reading it just uh, endlessly uh, that I, I had to pick up another copy. So uh, here is the explanation of Donnybrook by Frank Bill. The Donnybrook is a three-day bare-knuckle tournament held in a thousand-acre plot out in the sticks of southern Indiana. Twenty fighters, one wire fence ring. Fight until only one man is left standing, while a rowdy festival of onlookers, drunk and high on whatever's on offer, bets on the fighters. Kind of also reminds you of uh, every which way you can, and every which way but loose. Actually, there was bare knuckle fighting in both of those. Jarhead is a desperate man who do just about anything to feed his children. He's also the toughest fighter in Kentucky, and he's convinced that his ticket to a better life is the one fight with a cash prize so big it'll solve all of his problems. Meanwhile, there's Chainsaw Ag- Angus, an undefeated bare-knuckle beast who isn't too keen on getting his face punched anymore. So he and his sister Liz have started cooking meth. And they get in deep. <laughs> so deep that Liz wants it all for herself. One more showdown to take place at the Donnybrook. As we travel through the backwoods on our way to Donnybrook, we join a cast of characters driven to all sorts of evil in the name of getting their fix. Drugs, violence... Sex, money, honor, as they converse on their last shot to make things right. Donnybrook is exactly the fearless, explosive, amphetamine-fueled journey you'd expect from Frank Bill's first novel, and then some. Now, that is a total distillation of everything that's in this book, and it doesn't even begin to explain everything that happens. Um, You you know, you see that, and you think, this is going to be... A straightforward story, which it is. I mean, everything that the, the explanation has said is true. It does happen, but it leaves out so much. Uh, there are characters in this book that you've seen before, you've known before, you've brushed shoulders with before. Uh, in every little convenience store you've ever been to, uh, in every swap meet, and every uh, uh, everything down to the Lawrenceburg Speedway, Anything at some party out in the backwoods, any field party you've ever been to, any barn dance, anything. You've met every single one of these people because they're us. They really are us. I mean, it sounds like in the description that they're all a bunch of degenerates, which we all are degenerates. Uh, that they're all scumbags, which we're all scumbags. White trash, um, <laughs> bottom of the barrel types. And uh, I think that that would be a disservice if you were to call them types. Definitely in this book, uh, there are real people. And there are fantastically crazy situations that we see every day on the news. Um, uh, we hear about them all the time. And in fact, you know, there's a, there's a bounty hunter in this uh, book as well named Fu. He, uh, I, I can't recall off the top of my head, I think that he may have been the interest in... Uh, in some place that had gotten robbed, but basically, uh, Jarhead Earl is the name of the lead character, and it starts right in with a robbery. Uh, he walks into the local gun shop in this small Kentucky town, and uh, something interesting morally happens. He actually pulls a pulls a shotgun on this than the owner, 
because he knows that the owner doesn't have a gun under the counter because he thinks, you know, the whole place is full of guns. Who possibly would be stupid enough to try to rob the gun shop? And it turns out that Jarhead Earl is just that stupid, and he needs to feed Zeke, Z-E-E-K, and Caleb, his twin sons. So, but there's also, I mean, there's an underlying, there's an ulterior motive. He wants to get to Donnybrook so he can, uh, so he can show his, his stuff and uh, unseat uh, Chainsaw Angus from, from Supremacy. Which is kind of like the like I was talking about the every which way but loose, I think that that guy's name was Bull or something like that. I can't remember, but it's kind of the same the same type of drive to to be the best, but at the same time, you know, get paid and and get paid doing the dirty stuff, and that's definitely what he's going for. But like I said, with the moral component, when he goes into to rob the guy. Uh, the guy just starts putting piles of money out in front of him and he says, no, 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 stop right there. And the guy, and the guy says like, what are you talking about? He says, I only need a thousand dollars. So, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, payback with, um, with that crazy anti-Semite Mel Gibson in it. Uh, there's an element to that and that as well. And, um, and that was actually based on a Richard Stark book, which was totally hard bitten, uh, hard case crime novels and things like that, who Stephen King based his George Stark character in the dark half after, which was based off of his pseudonym, Richard Bachman. So, uh, there's, there's a thread of, uh, familiarity and, and, uh, a really hard bitten, um, vein throughout this entire story. But the, there's so many characters that weren't even mentioned on the back. Um, uh, Chainsaw's uh, okay. I almost gave something away there, but his his sister Liz, um, she is totally totally as cold and as calculating as they come. And there there are all these side characters, but it sounds like a simple story when you when you read the back and when you dive in, you realize that it's a simple story, all right, but. Only at the end, all of the threads and all of the uh, the lives that intertwine to make this insane, explosive ending on this book, uh, it really it takes the time somehow. I think I mean I think it's like 242 pages, something like that. Somehow there manages to be so many little subplots that end up working towards a whole. The Donnybrook ends up being the focus of uh, of the end of the book. And you wonder how all these people, these characters, manage to, you know, to fit together in this ending. And uh, it's, it's really something. It's a, it is a complete gut punch of a book. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that, that's, I guess that sounds like a pun. But uh, there's no pun intended. There's, uh, there's so many things in this book that... <laughs> that take you by surprise, but it shouldn't because, uh, everything's leading up to this, uh, in this book, there's, there's nothing that doesn't make sense towards some kind of, uh, ending of everyone. You see, you, you know, if someone, that's one thing that Frank Bill is good at doing, especially in crimes in Southeastern Indiana. Uh, I've got that book as well. And that's all short stories, but they all seem to be connected somehow. They, there's this universe that he lives in, 
and usually, you know, is just under some trailer somewhere or is rolled off the street in some rural road. There's nothing that you haven't seen before, but I'm not so sure that you would be able to, you know, consider it at home with some of the locations and some of the uh, predicaments that these people get in at the same time. It's not that any one thing is uh, is really unfamiliar or out of place. It's just that you can't believe that somehow he's into he, he's able to lattice them all together into this coherent novel, which it is. It's, it's completely coherent. You know everything that's going on at any one time, um, and it just amazes me that uh, that it was masterful enough so that you wouldn't be wondering who what each character was all the time because the, there are a lot of characters that take uh, front and center in this book because they just come into view. All of a sudden, you know, you don't see uh, Jughead, Jughead, Jarhead Earl anymore. You see Liz, and you see Chainsaw, and you see Fu, and you know, a total galaxy of other characters that are in this book. You you see them uncovered, and all of a sudden, the person that you are rooting for ends up being the person that you're rooting against. And that was kind of where I was going with these two picks for tonight was. Um, one is a book about someone who's trying to completely run away from who he is and what he's done. And the other one is running headlong towards it and the, the outcome of his, of his plans, which are completely dire. But, um, yeah, so that's all I'm going to say about Donnybrook as well, because to, to give any more away would totally, uh, take the glint and the edge off of this, off of this book. Um, but uh, it's not easy to find. You'll probably have to go online to find it. I had to search all over the place for a secondary copy of this book. So uh, as far as I know, it's, it's nowhere in any library around here. But hopefully, after, hopefully with all of the people that are watching this right now, the teeming millions of you, talk to your library, tell them to get Frank Bill whenever you can. And if they don't have Robert McCann, which they should, tell them to stock the shelves because it's all worth it. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, Robert McCammon, Gone South, definitely read uh, everything that he's got to offer, the entire catalog. You will not be sorry. There, uh, there isn't a blah moment. There isn't a sighing uh, voice in any of his work. And Donnybrook, uh, the secondary novel, I, I'm not sure if it's a sequel, direct sequel. I think that some characters... I hesitate to say a shared universe because I'm really starting to hate that term, but I guess it's the easiest thing to say. I think that there are characters that uh, float throughout the crimes of Southeastern Indiana and into Donnybrook and into uh, the newest, I think it's the newest one called The Savage. And I think that there's definitely something to be said for him landing uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Guru. I think that's the way you say it. A very prestigious publishing house. Uh, puts out his stuff, even though there's a, a picture of somebody getting their face smashed on the front of it. So there's something to be said for that. I guess they may have been looking for the next Jack London or Steinbeck. So, and they may have found it. I mean, it's a different time uh, now, which means it's not that so different at all. So uh, if you want violence, if you want uh, craziness, if you want... Uh, the lowest underbelly of things that you see every day, check out Donnybrook by Frank Bill. And um, I think that's about it for Diabolical Index 
for April 23rd. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, sorry about last week. I'm sure it's going to happen again at some point, uh, but I have to say I was kind of sad to break my record. I think that I was doing pretty well there. You were the only one. I was the only one. And now uh, I'm a failure. <laughs> so this is the last. Dot. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I can't give it up. There's just too many things to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm actually uh, not quite sure. I mean, I guess uh, next time, I guess it's going to be my mob. Like, if, if we want to take up the Lone Wolf again, because there's so much to it. There was so much to it. Uh, I looked through the uh, the Lone Wolf book after we were done that day, and I realized there were a thousand different uh, permutations. But it did seem like we were spending a lot of time in that one town, and it was starting to irritate me a little bit. Uh, but... We'll see. I might come up with something different. In fact, I uh, I found a few uh, Choose Your Own Adventures in the last couple of weeks. So I might actually uh, put it to a vote about which one's going to be featured in the non-entry episode next week. Nothing should get in the way. I don't think anything should get in the way. Uh, if anything does get in the way, uh, I'll see if I can't let you know beforehand and maybe do some sort of a, a promo or what have you. I don't know. Because, I mean, Cinematic Realities is, is going full bore, and I got, you know, a couple of the crew here. You never know. They might be in the midst of something and can't break free. But if that happens, I got a couple of lo-fi, uh, low-rent versions I can do for my phone or what have you. Some uh, Polaroids. I'll just kind of, like, take a bunch of Polaroids and then, like, flip them to, to make the, the zoetrope or whatever. But there you go. I can't even stop my own podcast. Okay. That's been the Diabolical Index, uh, where the pages of the Uncanny reside, beware human heart. And as always, keep it squirrely.